This morning we are continuing and ending our sermon series in the book of Second Peter. We're going to be going over all of chapter 3. Feel free to open to the book of Second Peter. The date is March 27th, 2011. The weather is Washington rainy. The sky is Washington gray. And I was about to be married to this wonderful, amazing, beautiful woman named Emily. And there was all this waiting that went into this day, anticipation of this day finally coming. This moment, this future life that we were going to have together was, was, was going to happen in this waiting was going to end. And though this waiting seemed endless, it, it did have its effect on my life. There was a drastic, actually, effect that the waiting period from the point when we got engaged to when we were married had on, on my life. From the moment we got engaged um, to the moment that we exchanged our wedding vows, the, the fact that I knew that this day, the, the wedding day, March 27, 2011, the fact that I knew that this day was coming changed everything in my life. I worked long weeks with long hours across two jobs to save for our new life together. Uh, because I was committed to marrying Emily, I sought to have eyes only for her. The, the search was over. I wasn't looking at anybody else. I uprooted my life in Philadelphia to move across the country rented an apartment in Sumner, got a job at the Starbucks in Sumner, and yes, I was even willing to have conversations about flower arrangements. <laughs> All because I knew this day was, was coming. Because I knew what was coming, it, it affected how I waited for it. And we too, as God's people, as the church, were waiting for our wedding day. And according to 2 Peter 3, this affects everything. This affects your entire life and how you wait for that day. Our lives are our lives of waiting as Christians. If you proclaim to be a Christian this morning, it is a life of waiting for Jesus to come back. And actually, the, the doctrine of the second coming is so important that it, it should seep into every aspect of your life, filling every pore of your being, affecting every, your, the way that you think, the way that you speak, speak, your marriage, how you raise your kids, everything. So the big idea this morning is in the form of a question. And it's how should we wait for Jesus to come back? How should we wait for Jesus to come back? And I have three answers from our text, which we're going to see as we go through. So the the first way that we should wait for Jesus to come back is persistently. And, And I'll explain this as we go on. But Peter begins here in the last chapter of 2 Peter, chapter 3, by claiming that he's writing to these believers with a specific purpose in mind. So let's read verses 1 through 7. And then we're, we're, we're going to discuss what's happening here. Peter says this, 
This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both, in both of them, I am stirring you up by, by stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So Peter began saying, I'm writing to you, believers, beloved, with a specific purpose in mind. He says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. The, the, the word sincere means, could, could be translated wholesome. The, the, what, what, what Peter is trying to get at here is, is there's something that he can remind them of. There's something that he can bring to their remembrance which will produce in these believers a distinctly Christian way of thinking that, that will form the way that they think, their, their worldview, their outlook, their, their mental filter, and make it wholesome, make it sincere, make it Christ-like. And, and what is this something that he's writing to remind them of? What is this something that will produce in them a distinctly Christian way of thinking? What does he say in verse 2? I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember, here's what they should remember, the predictions of the holy prophets. So this, and if we're remembering what's happened in Second Peter, which I don't have time to go over all of this morning, predictions of the holy prophets are pointing to the predictions that the Messiah would come, but that he would also come back after he's gone. That Jesus is coming back. So the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, that's Jesus, through your apostles. And this is the commandment, as, and as we go through our text this morning, we'll see, this is the commandment to live a godly life as we wait for Jesus to come back. This is seen throughout the whole of the New Testament. So he's writing to them to tell them, you need to persistently remember these truths in order to form a Christian way of life, a Christian way of thinking. Most mornings, my when I'm getting ready to leave the house, my one of my lovely kids comes and persistently knocks on my bedroom door with some urgent matter to ask me a question. They are un, one of them is unwavering in their desire to get in and ask whatever question they have on their mind or inform me of something right in the middle of me trying to get ready to leave to go to work. This is the type of persistence that Peter wants for these believers and for us. And specifically, it's persistence in remembering. It's keeping the doctrine of the second coming and all of its implications on our lives ever before our eyes in the center of our thoughts. So what specifically about the second coming should be persistently remembered? As we look at our text, and I'm going to go through a few verses here, we see 
That the second coming points both to judgment and renewal. So let's read verse 7 again. Peter brings up the second coming multiple times in our passage. Verse 7, he says, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. If you continue down to verse 10, Peter reminds us again that this day of the Lord, the day of judgment is coming. He says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Verse 12, he says that we are waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. Do you see a theme here? And the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter's saying persistently keep these things, this, in your mind. Beloved Christians, brothers and sisters, keep this in the forefront of your mind. And what is it? It's the fact that Jesus is coming back. And he is going to return with fire to judge purge and cleanse the world of all evil, including those, and this is the harsh news, who have not turned from their sin to trust in him for salvation. This, but Peter, also, Peter makes sure that we know this day, it's going to come. It is assured. It's going to happen. And it will come suddenly, like a thief in the night, come out of the blue. And it will be cosmically devastating. But judgment, fire and judgment, is not the end goal, is it? Where does Peter land us? So it's not just themes of judgment, but we also see renewal. The end goal is restoration. A new heaven, new heavens and new earth. Where we who trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, having escaped judgment through faith in him, that's, that's, that's warning, like, that sound is, is what Peter's text is doing to us this morning. <laughs> so the new heavens and new earth are coming after the warning sign. And, and it, it, it is a place where we who have believed in Jesus and have escaped the judgment through faith in him, we will dwell eternally with our God and with one another. So Peter says, beloved, keep this persistently in your minds. Don't let this go. Well, we would ask Peter, okay, well, well, why? Well, we've already seen in verse 1, he says, because thinking this way, or remembering this, is going to affect how you think and live. And, and we're going to see that as we continue. But now in verses 3 through 7, which we've already read, it's also because false teachers have risen up within these churches who deny the second coming of Jesus, and were therefore teaching against what Peter, the apostles, Jesus, and the Old Testament claim about Jesus and his return. And here we see why the false teachers think Jesus isn't coming back. In verse 4, which I'll read again, it's, they're basically like, you know what? This Jesus guy, he's taking too long. He's just taking way too long. Look at verse 4. They will say, these scoffers, these false teachers... Where is the promise of his coming? I I don't see it. Do you see it? 
Sounds like an empty promise to me. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. You know what? Since the day God made everything, things seem like they're pretty much going on as they always have. I I think we can relate to this experience to some extent. The monotony of life, things just kind of keep going on and on and on. And they're saying, well, man, this Jesus guy, he's just taking way too long. And so their solution to this supposed predicament was, he's not coming. He's not coming. He's not coming back. But according to Peter, they couldn't be more wrong. It says in verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. Peter says, no, 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 God actually has dramatically and suddenly, like a thief in the night, intervened in human history before, in Genesis 6, at the flood, to bring judgment. And he will do this again. Their fallacy was that they just weren't, they weren't reading their Bibles. They weren't reading their Bibles, and they were doubting God's word. They were impatient, thinking, yeah, this is not how God works. And Peter says, actually, this is how God works. So Peter says that these believers need to persistently remember and hold to the doctrine of the second coming because many around them are tempting them to believe differently. And this, according to Peter, which is what we saw in verse 1, to deny that reality leads to unchristian-like ways of thinking and living. And you see that, if you remember a month ago, when we were in 2 Peter chapter 2. The lives of these false teachers were utterly ungodly. And it all stemmed from the fact that they thought, Jesus isn't coming back, there's no judgment, I can basically live however I want. You know, for us, we too live in a world which blatantly denies the reality of Jesus' second coming, don't we? Right? Like, the notion that there is a God who is the one true God, who holds us accountable, and that judgment is coming on those who do not believe in Jesus, but you can be saved through Jesus, like, that's offensive. That is oppressive. Am I, am I wrong? Like, you will be mocked if you share that in public. It will happen if it hasn't happened to you already. But in addition to this, if, if the whole second return, judgment, new creation thing is just a farce, if these false teachers are right, well then why not live like this life is the only hope you have? You guys remember a few years ago, maybe some of the younger people, hashtag YOLO, you only live once. Like, is, is that not the message of Netflix and our culture at large right now? Is this not what is being pumped into our ears and eyes, molding our minds and thoughts through social media? Your hope is in this life only, and so you better live it up. My point is, is that as we live as Christians in this world, it is really easy to lose sight 
of our hope. That Jesus is coming back. And this is why we need to listen to Peter and persistently hold before our minds, before our eyes, cherish in our hearts, remembering the doctrine of the second coming. And clearly in our text, the way that we remain persistent in this belief is by submersing ourselves in God's word. Look back at verse 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets. Those are found in what we have as the Old Testament. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Well, the apostles' doctrine is what we have all throughout the New Testament. They were supposed to remember what we have in this book. And so the way that we remember, the way that we persistently hold these things in the fronts of our minds and hearts is by submersing ourselves in this book. Brothers and sisters, not only is this why we gather around God's word each week, not only is this why we have various Bible studies in the life of our church, not only is this why I would encourage you to be in a mentoring relationship with somebody else in our church, but it's also why I and the other elders at the chapel church would highly encourage you to have a consistent intake of God's word through personal Bible reading. This is one of the ways that God regularly and graciously reorients our perspective and transforms our minds that we might persistently remember the truth of the second coming and all the other truths of the gospel. So so one of the reasons that, that we need to persistently hold this in our mind is because well, we live in a world that would say otherwise. And we need to stay on track. But, but that's the other point. We need to persistently hold this in our minds because it, cherishing and, champion, and being a champion of the second coming actually keeps us on track. It keeps us thinking and living in godly ways. Even for me this week, as I was studying this passage and thinking about the second coming, I, I was overwhelmed by the refreshment that came for me in just meditating and thinking about the second coming. Just how reorienting it was for my own personal outlook, my view of life, my priorities, to think afresh about the reality that Jesus is coming back. Like when Jesus comes back, Satan and his hordes of evil forces who exploit humans in their sin and cause all sorts of suffering, attack, those who are faithful to Christ, they're going to be forever destroyed. Jesus the King, when he comes back, will establish his eternal rule, judging the world, purging it of all that's wrong, evil, and hateful. He's the good and mighty King who will wipe away every tear, banish all sickness, heal every wound, bind up every broken heart, and condemn all depression. He'll bring about the flourishing of men and women from every nation who have believed in him causing great singing and rejoicing. He will send out rivers of living water for us to forever drink from, feasting with him at his table, in his presence, with no end of joy, all for his glory. Brothers and sisters, every broken detail of your life, every letdown in your relationships, every problem in your marriage, every ache and pain in your body, every injustice that you face, every worry that you carry, every vile temptation, every reason that you have for sorrow and shame, every struggle that you have with sin, every ounce of suffering, every sting of death, all of that, all of that 
will end when Jesus comes back. That, that, that is our hope. When King Jesus returns in his glory to bring judgment and establish his kingdom and save his people to restore all things, that, that is our hope. You cannot have that in your mind and not be affected by it. And not have your entire life oriented and shifted by that truth. And that, that's why Peter says, how should you wait for Jesus to come back? You should wait persistently. Persistently remembering this truth. And yet, waiting persistently can be hard, can it? The, the, the believers that Peter is writing to are facing the effects of evil in this world. Um, not only are they suffering under the hands of these false teachers, but many Christians at this time are being persecuted by the Roman Emperor Nero, including Peter himself. He knows, that he, we called the sermon series Dying Words of the Church, because Peter is, knows he's about to die under persecution. So, of course, in their waiting, they're going, yeah, man, it does seem like Jesus is taking a long time to come back, doesn't it? It seems like he's taking a really long time. Like, when will my suffering end? He promised that it would end. When will God make all things right? See, the false teachers weren't wrong in their observation that Jesus seems to be taking a long time. It's just their answer that was wrong. What they did with that reality, from from our standpoint, that it seems like Jesus is taking a long time, what they did with that was wrong. And so Peter now, in verses 8 and 9, gives us a better answer, the right answer, how how we should respond to that reality. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There's a reason that he seems slow to us. Verse 8 is not giving us a timeline for measuring out exactly and precisely when Jesus is coming back. So please don't take this and go put a billboard outside saying Jesus is coming back on this date, this time, this hour. Because to God, a day is as a thousand years. So it must be like increments of... That is not what this verse is doing. What this verse is doing is it's contrasting our finiteness with God's infiniteness. What this verse is doing is showing us that God's perception of time is not like ours. He is not limited by us or our lives, even by our suffering. He is not limited. His clock works differently. What might seem like endless waiting to us in our short, short lives is but the blink of an eye for God. And and one of the effects that this is supposed to have on, on us and the believers Peter is writing to is to put things into proper perspective. From the perspective of a child, and I can say this firsthand as a young father, 
The ripping off of a band-aid can be perceived as a long, painful, unjust experience full of agony and strife. The taking out of a splinter, same thing. In the mind of a child, this is a long, hard event. And it really is for them. But for mom and dad, it's but a passing moment, right? It's just a splinter. It takes two seconds to pull out. It it is not a long moment. It is a short moment. If this is true for us as mere humans, how much more for God, right? Suffering is legitimately hard. Like, we face hard things in this life. And God knows that. We're given examples all throughout the scriptures over and over again to to lament that, that... show us that lamenting our suffering and mourning the evil in this world and that we experience in this life is, is, is a proper response. To mourn the realities of evil and to cry out, how long, O oh Lord, is not a bad thing. It is a good thing. Suffering is hard. But these verses remind us that in the midst of the sufferings that we experience in this life, and even though it seems like the depression or the pains, the worries, the doubts, the fears are relentless and unending. What this verse tells us is that these things do not change God's plan to set everything right. His plan is not bound by our experience. Just because it can seem to us that God is taking so long to come back does not mean that he has forgotten his promises or made empty promises. It does not mean that he is being slow. He works on a different timetable than we do. And yet there's more to our waiting, isn't there, in verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. This is what we've been talking about. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In verse 9, we see the reason God is waiting to come back, judge, and restore all things for the sake of his people. You see that there? He's patient, desiring for all people to come to repentance. Though many will face judgment on the final day, God's heart really is that they would come to know him and that they would be saved. So he patiently waits for his people to come to him. God is waiting. So not only can we as believers not say in the midst of our waiting that God has forgotten or that he's being slow, but we also can't say that God is not good. In the midst of our waiting, our hope is that God will come and that he has good redemptive reasons for not coming back yet. And so this What this does for us is it requires us to be patient. And oh, how we hate being patient. Like, we can't even stand when Amazon can't deliver a package in two days or under, and we throw up our arms wondering, what is the deal when it's going to, I ordered it Monday and it's not getting here till next Tuesday. We can't wait for that, let alone when we have to wait through suffering. And yet the call on us as believers is one of patient trust 
and the God who is guiding all of history, ordaining his good plans and purposes in his time and in his way. So this text, I think, calls many of us to repent of our short-sightedness and in full surrender use our cries of how long, O Lord, as cries of trust in our good God and his good purposes. So as we face the hardships of this life and as we wait for God to right all wrongs, we should surrender in patient trust to our loving and good God who has not forgotten his promises. And this morning, if you're here, you're wondering, maybe maybe you're not sure about this whole Christianity thing. Maybe you don't know if you're a Christian. Um, maybe you're just interested in Christianity. Just understand that this verse is saying God is waiting to come back because of you. Because he wants you to turn to him in faith and repentance. And trust that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins. That you might be saved. And not face judgment on the last day, but face joy in his presence. So that's something you're interested in. Please come see me afterward or talk to somebody you came with. So how should we wait for Jesus to come back? We should wait patiently. But there's more. There's more. As we move on to verse 10, we see that we should also wait purposefully. Verse 10 says this, but, so we're going back to the, to Peter reminding us about judgment. The day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming the, the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, amen, which the ignorant and unstable twist their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Here, we, we, we see in these verses that Peter does something really interesting. He, he vacillates between talking about the second coming of Christ and all that that means, so the judgment and the renewal. So he vacillates between speaking about the second coming And then he starts speaking about how we should live in light of this. And then he goes back to speak about the second coming. And then he goes back to talk about how we should live in light of this. So notice in verse 10, he speaks about coming judgment and how all things are going to be dissolved and this day of the Lord is going to come. And then in verse 11, he says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be? Beloved, believers, brothers and sisters, what type of people should you be? The fact that this is coming. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? 
he connects our eschatology, which is our doctrine of the last things, which includes the second coming. He connects our eschatology with how we live right here, right now. You know, a lot of Christians talk about the fact that everything's going to burn. It's all going to burn. It's not just going to burn. It's going to burn, burn. It can almost come off when we hear believers, or even when we say that, well, it's all, you know what, it's all going to burn. It can almost come off as if this is some sort of excuse just to kind of give up and kind of just get through this life because, you know what, nothing really matters. It's all going to burn. But here, Peter claims the exact opposite. Like, he's saying it, it's, it's going to burn. Like, judgment is coming. So live, live godly lives. Like, your life here now actually matters. The fact that judgment and the new creation is coming means that we have every reason to live out God's call in our lives and to lead godly lives right here, right now. And the first reason why we should leave godly lives is because of what verse 13 says. Let's... We've already read it. It says that the new heavens and new earth are coming, and and look at the last phrase, it says, in which righteousness dwells. The call on our lives as believers is not to wait until we get to heaven to lead heavenly lives. The call is to live out the life of heaven here and now, ahead of time. One commentator said this and slightly modified it. So basically, if righteousness finds its home in the new creation, then it should find its home in us as new creations in Christ in this life. Another reason we lead godly lives now in light of Jesus' return is because of the end of verse 10 and what verse 14 says. The end of verse 10 talks about when Jesus comes back that all the works that are done on the earth will be exposed, naked to the eye. And, that, and then in verse 14, it says that we should be diligent to be found by him. Meaning, he's going to come and find us in a certain state. What kind of state is he going to find us in? We should be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Which is the complete opposite way of how Peter's described the false teachers in chapter 2. Without spot or blemish and at peace. And then he brings up this thing with Paul's writings... And it seems like the false teachers were twisting what Paul said about the second coming and the call to live a godly life in light of that to their own liking. So he's saying, don't be like them. Don't be like that. So what we see here in these verses is that there's this idea that when Jesus comes back to judge the world, everything, our works, all of it's going to be exposed, laid bare and naked before God. And when, he come, when Jesus comes to get his bride, he wants her to be ready. Adorned with the dress and the makeup of good works. That's how he wants to find her. That's how he wants to find us. Our personal holiness matters because those who God saves and makes holy by faith become holy in their living and prove that they are true believers. You can go all the way back to 2 Peter chapter 1. This is, this is what it talks about. So, what are we saying? We're saying that the second coming pushes us to lead purposeful and godly lives as we await Jesus' return. 
That's Peter's point. Like, you have work to do as you wait for Jesus to come back. We have a purpose right now on the earth. And it's not, first and foremost, our personal success, our own happiness, our pleasure, our comfort. Now, I don't want to claim that those things are always bad. They're not always bad. God gives good, his kids good gifts. But what, but what we are to be diligent about, the work that we have been given to do, the work that we are to be ready for, how we make ourselves ready for the bridegroom to come back and get us, is to be steadfast in leading godly lives. This means living as loving husbands who sacrifice for their wives. It means wives living as respectful women who show your younger women how to, how, how to lead a godly life. It means children obeying your parents. It means being a faithful friend. It means being an attentive church member to the needs around you, to gathering with God's people. It means giving our li- of our lives sacrificially for the gospel. And I think another way that we lead a godly life right here, right now, is by verbally proclaiming the gospel through evangelism. We've already noted that God is waiting to bring an end to all things so that more people can be saved, right? And the witness that God has left for himself is us. His witness is us. We are the means he has chosen to get the word out about his gospel. And this means part of our purpose of being left here on the earth as we await Jesus' return is not only to grow in godliness, but to witness to our great and glorious God in the process. I think another thing is that right now in our culture, especially among young people, so if you're 20 or younger, or if you consider yourself young, Please listen. There is a massive pandemic of purposelessness, hopelessness, reigning and ruling in the hearts and minds, leading to all sorts of depression, anxiety, and seeking meaning in all the wrong places. To follow, what this text shows us is that to follow Jesus and to live in light of his second coming, to wait for his return, gives you real purpose. It gives you work to do that is eternally meaningful to know him and to make him known. And that does not just mean being a pastor. That does not just mean being a missionary. That means as you work at Boeing or you work at McDonald's, glorifying God in your work, witnessing to his goodness, Following Christ does not, following Christ means that you do not need to be sucked into the value system of our culture and time. You can know true joy in Christ and a purpose-filled life for His glory until you, until He comes back. Those of you who are, who are retired, young people need you. God has a purpose for you. Invest in young people who feel purposeless, who feel hopeless. Like, this is the beauty of the church as we minister God's word to one another, right? To remind one another that Jesus is coming back. We have work to do. And so how should we wait for Jesus to return? We should wait purposefully. And now to conclude, we go to verses 17 and 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care 
that you were not carried away with the error of lawless people, referring to the false teachers, and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter now ends his letter with a therefore in verse 17. And and in one sense, this looks back on the whole entire letter. It says, in light of all of this, in light of everything I've told you, let me sum it up. Don't be carried away by these false teachers and their bad doctrine about Jesus' return. Keep it in the forefront of your minds. Don't get sucked into that. And then keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Grow in godliness and in knowing God more. The reality is to forget or reject the fact that your wedding day is coming will dramatically affect your stability and your fruitfulness as a Christian. What you do with the second coming, what you do as you wait for your wedding day to come as a Christian, what you do, how you hold to this, it affects your entire life. Holding to it persistently gives you hope that as the world falls apart, waiting on God patiently, uh, sorry, waiting, holding to it persistently gives you hope as the world falls apart. Waiting on it patiently helps you know how to suffer and still trust in God's goodness. And doing all of this while purposefully leading a life that pleases God spurs you to lead a meaningful life to God's glory here and now. Brothers and sisters, if there's something that we need today, if there's something that Peter would commend to us today, if there's something that we should hold to today, if there's something that we need to be reminded of and hold ever in our minds, it's that Jesus is coming back. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son the first time to save us, to die on the cross, to be raised from the dead, and we thank you that he will come again to fully and finally redeem your people, that we might dwell eternally in joyful bliss with you forever. Help us to live in light of that. We ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen.